LegalizeFreedom.com Why are we here? Where do we come from? Where are we going? From the nature of reality to the future of humanity. Beyond politics, poverty and war. LegalizeFreedom.com Greetings and welcome once again to LegalizeFreedom.com. I'm your host Greg Moffat and my guest today is Thomas Sheridan, who joins us to discuss his latest book, The Anvil of the Psyche. Ask yourself, what is popular culture? How does it come into existence? How do universally accepted ideas of art and creativity, mass media, publishing and financial constructs, and political and social doctrines arise? Are mass social and cultural movements, coupled with one's personal and social identity, always a natural flow of social, economic, philosophical, spiritual, and even artistic threads that run through the collective human experience? Do they organically emerge from the underground to gradually become mainstream cultural and social consensus? And from these options and opinions, do we pick and choose objectively? Do we, as the consumer, the investor, or the voter, make our individual decisions, affiliations, allegiances, and even our emotional attachments determined exclusively by our own choices, by our own will? The answer to all of these questions is no. Hello and welcome, Thomas Sheridan. Thank you very much for joining us once again on LegalizeFreedom.com. Hi, Greg. I'm delighted to be back. Now, Thomas, today we're going to talk about your latest book, uh, The Anvil of the Psyche, and uh, I'm going to get you just to set out an overview of that for us. Um, but it seems that uh, a lot of us are under an illusion that we actually have free will and freedom of choice, uh, that it is, in fact, just that, an illusion. Well, that's the idea behind the book, is that I started to look at my own life. Uh, this has been going on for a long time now. But back in the mid-1990s, I worked as a graphic designer, and I basically learned how to fool people with imagery and text and words. And it was basically how corporations were giving people's assumptions regarding everything from data to financial returns and presenting them in such a way that they would make losses look like uh, either, you know, moderate gains or even not so bad. And I remember being and even, you know, minor gains look like large uh, increases in shares and profits and and pension funds. And I, I remember thinking, well, you know, how how common is this all all true, you know, the commercial world and I started to see it everywhere that basically people were given we're given a sort of value system that isn't real we're given hopes that aren't real and we're given information from which we attach ourselves belief packages and identity constructs that are not really rooted in anything other than a kind of a motif of our own self-image that's been extrapolated from corporate ideals and has been applied to us. Now, that may sound very harsh and make us all seem like we're robots and idiots and stuff like that. It's not like that at all. It doesn't work that way. It's not like 
you know, one day we were we were simply programmed by an advertising campaign or a marketing program or a political campaign. It doesn't work like that. It begins very, very early on in our education in childhood. And what they do is they basically build an anvil inside our psyche. And this anvil is just like an anvil that a, a blacksmith would use to create a horseshoe. He has a specific shape of anvil that he needs with the right kind of curves and everything so when he blows the hammer on it he can actually shape a rod of hot metal into a horseshoe well the anvil in our psyche works the same way we're put into the education system as children and we're deliberately distorted they make our left brain far more dominated over our right brain and this has two functions one it diminishes our ability to create but secondly and more importantly it makes us acquiesce and seek dependency upon control figures and authorities so we spend the rest of our lives seeking an identity, an opinion from an authority figure, anyone who can be, can be seen, viewed or impressed upon as a, an authority figure is automatically to us someone we should look to and give our, give our identity construct to and therefore their opinions become our opinions. And this happens all through every aspect of our lives. I can remember for years thinking I was a socialist. Uh, and when I finally realized, well, why am I a socialist, Bill? Because I was, became from a working class background and I'm supposed to be a socialist. And it's quite simply, that's the idea of the behind the book, that we're given identities that are not actually real. And for the most part, until we break out of this and what we call, you know, a wake up or become awakened later on in life, we'll, most people will spend their lives debating, having opinions and even defending ideas that rooted from everything from culture to politics and they didn't actually determine them themselves they were slotted into these positions all through the history of and course of their lives now a lot of what you um devote the book to is a sort of breakdown and deep analysis of popular culture and uh, if we think about this for a minute it's kind of kind of a nonsense because my dictionary tells me that popular means to be regarded with favor approval or affection by people in general and mm. the culture is the quality in a person or society that arises from a concern for what is regarded as excellent in arts, letters, manners, and scholarly pursuits. So it would seem that what is popular in these terms anyway should be diametrically opposed to that which is cultured or you know, be defined as cultural or of, you know, of culture. Well, that's big. well, let's look on it this way. The most powerful force on this planet today is popular culture. Everyone is talking about it. Everyone is consumed with it from everything from sport to music to art. And as you said, it's not necessarily the best. Sometimes it is, but generally it's the trashiest stuff. It's the stuff that isn't cultured, and it's the stuff that the, it does not appeal to the people. It's enforced upon them. It's enforced upon them through very clever sciences that use specific methodologies to actually impose these beliefs and these uh, tastes, if you will, on people. Everything, you know, everything is basically subliminal today and has been since the advent of sort of basically the gramophone. Everything has been kind of subliminal in a way. Songwriting is written with hooks and with, you know, advertising is written with jingles. And it's all rooted in, it's all rooted in commercialism. The idea is to cater to the lowest common denominator by creating a sort of a one-size-fits-all popular culture, as you say, to appeal to the populace. In reality, it's none of the things it's supposed to be. It's simply just the, the greatest marketing tool ever invented. So this accounts really for why, when we do look at popular culture and most of it's rubbish, that, that there's no ne not necessarily a line you can trace there to 
it, that it should therefore be unpopular because it's designed for a particular purpose, which is not what it first appears. Well, that's because you'd have the record companies, not so much today, but in the past. Well, nowadays it's people like Simon Cowell and Louis Walsh. But in the past, when somebody was signed for a record act, let's, let's take someone who's truly appalling, like Tiny Tim in the 60s, who sang Tiptoe Through the you know, Tulips. Well, his actual fame was brought about by A&R men and people within the music business, where someone like Jimi Hendrix who would have been at the same time. His popularity was a grassroots thing that came up at the bottom. Now... Yes, that does happen now and again, but decreasingly less so in more in recent times, where the actual pap is the you know the only thing that's out there now. So then again, the idea it's popular amongst whom it's popular the trash culture, the rubbish culture, as you said today, is popular among the people in the control system at the very top because they know this stuff will appeal to the widest audience. It's it's exactly like that. And it, when anything good comes up from the underground, when anything of substance, when anything that touches the actual spiritual soul, that touches people in any way, whether it be hip hop, early heavy metal, you know, er, you know, punk rock, early goth, you name it, early electronic music, anything, early rock and roll, it's immediately co-opted and, sw- and brought into the commercial world and it's suddenly destroyed. Oh, you look, at someone like, look at someone like Elvis Presley. That first album is, is, is a pure rock and roll album. That guy was something, you know, definitely from the grassroots. And within no time, he's, he's on a ship in Hawaii floating through, he's on a boat in Hawaii singing these awful musical songs and he's off into the army. Same idea. They do not like. They're in fact they're terrified of anything coming up from the underground. They will immediately co-opt it and try and bring it into their system again for social and political ideals. What do you think is happening when you have a rare phenomenon, say for example, like Michael Jackson and an album like Thriller, which is most people will know this, and it's still the best-selling album of all time, because you have there something that's incredibly popular. I mean, his career generally, but that album in particular. But that album actually is, is really, really good. I think the production, the performance, the songs, they all still really stand up. So is that just that even though Jackson led this terribly controlled, manipulated life and was always in t- you know intended to be something that wasn't necessarily to do with what he wanted, but it was rather his father and the people around him, the fact that you can produce under those circumstances something so good does that just hint at the underlying truth you know that that sort of art and music in particular can be transcendent and sometimes that just breaks through well i'm delighted that you said that i'm delighted that you see you mentioned that michael jackson in that period how good he was because he absolutely was and i'm not a big fan of pop music i I mean i like heavy music but i do i do know quality when i see it And, and that album you're right the songs do still stand up today there's also aspects we have to look in or cultural trends. Michael Jackson, I believe, with that album came up at a point when basically American music went flat. They just come out a whole big sort of big band, when it's, you know, arena rock thing like Journey and all these bands like Boston. And they were in decline. This would be the mid 80s. And an alternative scene had never really kicked off in America. And heavy metal, I mean, the big heavy metal that was still to come, that wasn't there either. So there was a gap. There was a gap. If you look at the songs in the charts around 83, 84, they were pretty, pretty bad. And Madonna would be another one of them that showed up out of blue. And 
what happens is that like that album came along and it suddenly did sound good. I don't think the record, I mean, I'm sure the record companies were absolutely delighted with the success of it, but it had a good producer, Quincy Jones. It had very good musicians on it, like Eddie Van Halen and many other people. It had songs, it, it, the songs were actually written by, some of the songs were written by people who came out of the, uh, the sort of arena rock bands like Toto and stuff that would be before it. So it was just the right sound for its time. And these things do happen again, where something from the, from that was so good, even at that popular, breaks through. Because I can remember right before Michael Jackson came out with Thriller, he was kind of considered a washed-up child singer. You know, it was very surprising to me at that time when he became such a huge sensation he was. The only reason for that was the quality of the stuff was so good. And at the time, in American music in particular, it was a bit of a cultural wasteland. We'll come back to music, actually, particularly with my hat on as a, as a music journalist. We'll come back to music several times in our chat but basically to get back to the underlying message here pop culture and that which is handed to us uh, in television and in advertising and um, even from politics sometimes this is about programming and indoctrination and this is what essentially if you try and boil it down to like what is this for you mentioned it earlier it was commerce so basically it keeps us doing jobs, most of which are not necessary, to buy this stuff, to consume it, to make money for certain groups and individuals and corporations, get us into debt, where that's the net effect of it, maybe not be designed that way, and that then in turn keeps us in those jobs, and so the circle goes round and round. Yeah, to sell us an achievable fantasy, so much of the modern lifestyle has been sold from from music, you know, all the way from the Beach Boys selling the whole idea of like the sun and the girls and the beach and all that kind of thing. It's all come through that. So many of the expectations of people today and, and for a long time, too, since we were teenagers and even before has come through popular culture. What kind of car you drive, what kind of clothes you wear, what kind of motorcycle, what kind of even girl you want, how you should behave yourself, how you should address your own existence within your own social or sort of cultural, you know, grouping. It all comes from that. It's all to sell you an achievable fantasy and, and, and a fantasy that's just it's just out of your reach. But it can be achieved. It can be reached. This is a very kind of that American dream idea that everyone everyone can be great. And it ties in very well with the whole thing that uh, Andy Warhol said that, you know, everyone has their 15 minutes of fame in the future. There's so much of that going on. It's And, the, and if you look at underneath it, it's all cultural sort of, you know, underwriting. So many of the large record companies, particularly ones like Sony, are involved in many different aspects, just like most of the global and multinational corporations in the last 20 or 30 years. So they'll sell you the singer who sells a certain brand of clothes or a certain brand of car or, you know, you know, even a whole lifestyle. And you'll often find that the companies like Sony, you know, and the other ones, they will have many of the other companies you know, the other subsidiaries and other companies and other products that will come with that. So everything in popular music and has been for a while is one gigantic, and even movies, is one gigantic advertisement. Well, thinking about the X Factor, which you sort of alluded to there with this 15 minutes of fame overnight sensation idea, uh, you know, that everyone has the right to the, to the sort of, uh, if not the, the fame, then certainly a chance to get it. I mean, I watched an episode of the X Factor once and um, wouldn't do that again. But the atmosphere to me was almost like, have you seen the film, uh, The Island? No. Uh, uh, well, it was very much a science fiction film, but it was very much about a load of 
people living in this enclosed society, basically not aware of the wider reality. And they were basically entered into a lottery um, so that they could then um, escape. Uh, so, so it was, but a very complex plot. But, well, have you seen the film Logan's Run? <laughs> oh, yes, yeah. Because the atmosphere in X Factor reminded me of that as well. It was it was like these people were desperate to basically not be killed. That's what it felt like. It wasn't that they felt they were sharing their creativity or, or sharing their gift. It was like this was their one chance to not be humiliated. And yet there they were up there. And isn't humiliation a huge part of the X Factor process? Well, that comes from a, a very deep rooted motif within West and actually all Europe, all world tradition. And I go over this in the new book. It's the idea of regicide in many sort of pre-Babylonian and many even, you know, right up to fairly recent times in African parts of Asia. And it existed in Europe and particularly in the, in the Gaelic countries. It was actually at one time, Ireland up until about the 5th and 6th century, this was commonly practiced among the kingdoms, where you would have a mock king, somebody who was a nobody, a peasant or a serf, who would be brought up from the, the, the ranks or selected and allowed to be the king for a week. He would have access to the king's concubines. So in some cases, in, in the African tribes, he could even have sex with the queen. And he would wear the king's robes, enjoy his food, and live in absolute luxury. And then at some point, usually after a week or five days, or sometimes it was done according to lunar cycles, he'd be ritually murdered. He'd be murdered in front of the population. And that's the, I see that same idea on these shows, not only the X-Factor shows, but shows like Big Brother. You're brought in there, given a limited amount of stuff, and then it's taken away from you, and often in the most humiliating ways, where you see yourself on the cover of these awful magazines like Closer, which is interesting in itself, because if you look at that magazine Closer, it's in the, in the newsstands, it's about fallen celebrities, and very often they're people that have had their five minutes of fame from these kinds of shows. And what they'll often do is, because it says C-L-O-S-E, or part of the celebrity or something they'll be holding up will cover up much of the C. So the actual magazine title says Loser. And this is, <laughs> this is a very clever trick that's played, a very clever sleight of hand. And also, the rest of us who never get this fame, our insecurities, our failings, and all the things we didn't do in our lives, we're jealous of this person who at least got a small period of stardom. So we, we enjoy tearing them down. We enjoy hating them. So they play on very sort of powerful psychoanalytical uh, ideas of human beings being filled with engineered envies and jealousies. And the idea of the mock king, regicide, lives very much on to this day with an X Factor and Big Brother and those shows. As well as this humiliation and sort of exaltation uh, duality, it seems to me a lot of the, not just the X Factor thing, but pop culture and a lot of advertising that comes our way and also to widen out a lot of media reporting is a lot about elation followed by depression you know and I'm, they're fucking with our dopamine levels basically and an example for me to give you a media example the ultimate one actually in recent years would be the day that it was announced it was the 6th of july and it was announced that uh, britain had been awarded the 2012 olympics and the next day you got the 7-7 tube bombings and and what that what that does to people psychologically, you know, especially on a mass scale like that, and on, on a, a less destructive level, you see that just in small ways every day in in media and culture. Yeah, and sport especially. I remember when like I've seen videos and photographs of Irish guys after the European Championships last year in Poland. You know, after Ireland had a terrible, you know you know, initial ground and they lost all their matches. These guys look like they've been told they had cancer. And these guys look like they've been told that they'd had like five minutes left to live and all their family had been killed. 
they were absolutely crushed and devastated. You know, because it come from this high of watching the match, maybe someone scores a goal, suddenly there's hope in their lives, and then the game ends with a loss, and they're completely devastated. And you're absolutely right about the dopamine levels. They're keeping us in states of adrenaline and dopamine, flying, and, and also norepinephrine, the, the stress hormone, flying up and down and keeping and making us junkies. This is why the news is at certain times every day, 1 o'clock, 6 o'clock, 10 o'clock in most countries. You get, a, you get the story that keeps you in a state of stress, all the bad negative stories, and at the end of the news, you get your little happy story, your little sort of public interest, you know, community story that makes you forget all the nasty stuff you had. You had a little spike of dopamine, then you go through for another few hours, you watch the news again, you get brought through this whole state of hypervigilance, the norepinephrine is Flying up from your lower brainstem into the back of your brain, and you're, you're, you're you know you're having physiological changes. Your skin is actually standing up and in. Your nervous system is changing. Your heartbeat is increasing. Your pulse is increasing. And then at the end, another silly story about something good, feel good story, and you get the dopamine again. We're made junkies. That's what that's all about. The keepers junkies. The news is a fix. The news is a form of of, of, a, of a drug dealer. That's all that is. That's why people watch the same news three times a day with the same bloody stories. They're actually craving that fix of dopamine at the end of the show i've often wondered just on a side note related to that uh, you notice it particularly like I, I would tend to see more tv if i was in a hotel than i ever would anywhere else because it's just you know it's just something colorful and moving in the corner you put on the, the 24-hour news cycle and you notice that it basically does form an hours on say on sky or bbc it's usually 45 minutes of news and then 15 minutes of sport. And then every now and every few hours, they'll have a half hour technology program or something like that. But in terms of the headline news, it's the same thing over and over and over again, evolving only very slightly. And you consider the amount of stuff that's happening in the world. They could do 24 hour news cycle, repeat nothing and still have a million other things to report. But they don't. And they keep you a junkie by having that breaking news thing. You're kept in a state of, is the breaking news coming? What's going to happen? And like the most minor story appears up and you'll have this like, the Onion has done some great like send-ups of this, you know, some bullshit coming up next. And you'd have breaking bullshit, you know, this thing coming, there's something breaking news. I've seen people, you, you know, like you said, not only hotels, but like, in, in train stations where you would have the, you know, the, the, the news on, like Sky News or whatever, and when breaking comes on, every eye in the place would turn towards it, and then it would be like breaking, or just like, you know, some ridiculous story, like Scotland has a new rugby manager, something meaningless to their lives, and yet they would, that breaking thing would like ca capture them constantly, a state of hypervigilance. It's almost like compensating for when we lived in the wild and we were worried about eaten by predators. They're tapping into the same kind of archetypal cores of our personality. Yeah, and of course, you mentioned uh, screens in train stations, and they're, they're cropping up everywhere now. I mean, the, the, the local stations here that I use, I mean, the screens are enormous. They're like something that you would see at a rock show. And not only is it repetitive information and it sort of provokes people, it's also not actionable. There's nothing you can do about it. And not only that, you're not any better off knowing it. I mean, I've never understood why a quarter of the time in the central train station is spent giving stock market updates. Most people are not directly invested in the stock market. Most people don't, you know, they don't realize that, that this, these moves up and down are almost meaningless, but that's the sort of information that's, that's put in front of us, not actionable. Yeah, I've often wondered about that one too as well. As you said, like, why is there constant updates to the financial market where you have the Nike and the Financial Times Index and all this stuff coming? And yeah, like I said, nobody is actually 
cares about that that much. Again, it's to impose a sense of importance, I think, on that stuff. I think that stuff is, the idea of that is to make you feel that's, that's really, really important stuff. You know, that's, this is crucial. It's as important as anything else in your life. Even though you have nothing to do with it, it's really important. I, I tell you one thing that I noticed about it, like, be, you know, being on this scene and being on talking tours. I did that financial terrorism tour with John Perkins, and we traveled around a few places doing it. And there was a guy on there that used to work for Goldman Sachs. I can't remember his name now. An American guy. He was, he was just another stockbroker or trader who'd made something, a video on YouTube or on the BBC. He said something like, Goldman Sachs runs the world or something like that. And for some reason, this guy, who was no different than anyone else within the financial system, was suddenly a hero amongst the truther and the, and the alternative community. And yet he was one of these people that they were supposed to dislike and call the globalists. But it was just because he made some statement that global governments don't run the world, global sac, global sacks runs the world. It's almost like, oh, he's really important. Here's a guy from the financial markets. He's on our side. He's on the side of the truthers and stuff like that. And it was really ridiculous when I was looking at this. Now, I'm not against the guy. He's just doing his job and stuff like that. But I was, I was thinking to myself, why are these, why are people who claim to be like woken up and claim to be like, uh, you know, no longer slaves to the corporate system lining up to have their guy, the photograph taken with a guy who works as a stockbroker in New York? He hasn't changed. He hasn't, you know, being a rebellion against this. And I think that comes from the same thing of these constant stock updates on the news. People are to made to believe that what happens in the financial markets is completely and totally crucial to their lives, even beyond their own you know, political structures in their countries. And it's a very interesting mind control thing. What goes on in the Nikkei index, what goes on in the, the New York Stock Exchange is so important to you, even if you're only a greengrocer in Halifax. Yes, well, the that aspect of the breaking news coming up and all the non-actionable garbage, it may not be garbage to everybody in the world, but to most people it is, all that being put in front of us. The, another thing related to that, which which I notice and it gets me and it kind of sums up, I think, most of these moments that sum up where pop culture is at. And that's when I uh, log on to my email account in the morning and the homepage comes up and it's got some news and sport and what have you. And quite often there'll be a headline uh, something, something, something goes viral. And I think, oh, here we go. What piece of crap is this going to be? Because it's always crap. And I actually collected a few examples here, which we'll just share to give listeners a flavor of what we're talking about. And this, these are all from the last 24 hours on my newsfeed. <clears throat> Molson Canadian beer ad goes viral. Bride-to-be search for lost engagement ring goes viral. Toddler's trick shot video goes viral. Video of baby dancing Gangnam style goes viral. Samsung washing machine bear video goes viral. And have you noticed how they're nearly all commercials? So a lot of that comes from the actual uh, corporations themselves who make up these fake stories. In my last book, Defeated Demons, I had a story about this one, this guy who was a male model who was the first one to ever start modeling women's uh, wedding dresses and he was working for a department store in holland and the same thing it went viral it turns out that all the people who were saying this is a groundbreaking advertising campaign having a guy advertise you know modeling women's women's wedding dresses that came directly from the actual store itself so a lot of these viral things they're fake they're completely fake and you'll find that they're all in one way some form of advertising even the one the kid the baby dancing gang style crap that's to promote the song, to promote the 
the whole the record whoever loses the record whoever owns the publishing that gets played on the radio or whatever it's all about that it's very devious but it's very it's all it's also opportuni- opportunistically stupid as well because it's so obvious they're pushing in their faces and this huge sort of public apathy towards if you you go on to say yahoo news which is filled with this kind of garbage yeah the I would say the vast majority of comments and the ones that get the most thumbs up are the ones saying, why is this garbage being pushed in our faces? I was actually referring, that's where I got all those headlines from, was Yahoo News, actually. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> yeah, well, even when they're they're not um, manufactured in the sense that it's just someone's home video, it's always, we, we, we always celebrate, the more retarded it is, the more people seem to latch onto it. It's never like guy talking about uh, has insight into the fact that uh, there is no time, there is no death, and uh, we are all, you know, universal consciousness experience itself in three-dimensional reality goes viral. That never happens. It's always retarded crap. Well, I saw a video on YouTube, and it was about a guy who just got divorced, and it was actually very moving. And the guy was just talking about where does his life go from here. And this this was a guy in America, and he was just making a statement about, like, you know, he was discussing and going over how his marriage had ended and, you know, his regrets and, you know, what the future holds and all this kind of, all the other legal things. And he wasn't being angry. He was just sort of, like, having this very contemplative and quite moving thing. And I looked at it, I had 15,000 viewers, and I was thinking, well, that's all right. And then across from it, I see this one thing, and it's some kid, just an ordinary American kid who acts stupid, has a video where he's showing the stuff in his parents' refrigerator that's that's past its sell-by date, and that had 24 million views. A kid showing, you know, mayonnaise that was a week old, and he goes like, you know, mom was trying to poison us. You know, it's stupid. 24 million views. Well, I know that we have an aversion to, uh, well, a lot of people in our societies have an aversion to hard hmm. information, tough uh, realizations, facts, uh, facing up to the predicament that we're in, you know, as a species and globally. Uh, but really, the, the swing in the opposite direction now is it, it, I often think it must have gone, the pendulum must have swung completely in the opposite direction, but then it always seems to have a little bit further to go. Exactly. It's very strange. You think like people would just have enough and throw the towel in. But human beings are funny that way. It's like as Rome went into decline, they just had more and more shows and more and more slaughter fests at the uh, the Colosseums in, in Rome and the other amphitheatres and you would think there's a point where the people of Rome would just get cynical and say we're being controlled but it never happened it never happened it, it, they just kept on going until the Goths came in and destroyed their empire it's just so strange it, it, you just think how how debase how stupid how meaningless can you make a human being's life before they say, I've had an, ab- an absolute enough of this, I want something more meaningful. It just seems to be that it's perpetual and forever. It's just very, very strange. It's almost like they're playing with us. And some fact, I think they are. I think they're actually, they, I think there's, there's these fellows at the top, at top of these advertising, marketing, and other communications group, I think they actually piss themselves laughing behind the scene when they see something like Gangnam Style getting a billion views. You know, I, th- I really do think they believe, I really do think they believe that. Uh, we've spoken uh, about reality TV. You mentioned Big Brother, and of course we talked about X Factor. And there's one episode very well known. Um, listeners outside of the UK may not be familiar with this, but they can certainly go and look it up. And it was the the tragic life and very public death of a reality TV quote unquote star called Jade Goody. 
Well, the Jade Goody thing is a remarkable story. That's why I covered it in the book. It's it just it says it all, really. If you really want an insight in a thousand years from now, if they want an insight into British culture and Irish culture too, because we have that here too, just look at the Jade Goody story. It has it all. The nobody who was brought up to be the king or the queen in her case, she has the you know the peach. The, the, she's the the people love her and they do. Uh, she's one ordinary girl that gets brought up, so we have the ritual regicide thing developing. Then she has her little period where TV shows and everything like that. She goes back on a celebrity big brother. Now she's a queen. She's no longer one of us. So they're waiting for her, or they're planning, I believe, to take her down. So they have these two other Muppets, in, in these two, two other like dysfunctional females, in there with them. And they start this racial bullying. Which, to be fair, if you look at that video now, she wasn't the worst. They actually put her mother in there and everything to try and wire her up. Uh, this Indian actress, actress called Shilta Shetty. And it was, you know, it was pretty horrible to watch at the time. But it wasn't the end of the world the way the media made it out. Now, she was probably, of the four people involved in that incident, the least you know, culpable. But what did they do? They made the, the media targeted her and made an example of her. Suddenly she was public enemy number one. And the people who had loved her last year were now, you know, devoted, devoted to hating her this year. Visceral, visceral hatred. I mean, this woman was like really under some tremendous, uh, you know, intense public hatred. And I mean, I've nothing against her. She was an uneducated woman. She was not a very smart person. And she was in many ways a victim. So she's put up there. Then she has like this thing where she tries to go to India and she tries to apologize and so on. And then the next thing you know, she gets sick. And then she's used as some kind of uh, advertising thing for the uh, the cervical cancer vaccine. That Then she's suddenly okay again. The next thing you know, she drops dead. And she's the same people who had hated her love her again she's almost transformed into kind of a, an icon and it's the strangest thing and the media the see actual british journalists newspaper journalists at the outside her house where the flowers were in almost fake convulsions of grief the whole thing has to be planned in fact it's there's a part of me actually believes that many of these journalists are quite, particularly the newspaper journalists, a lot of them are psychologically unhinged. I'm absolutely convinced of that at this point, especially these ones who report on these celebrities. Something happens to them where they actually become to believe the own hype and they're, they're like, they will actually develop a sort of an affection for the, for the, for the hype and the story that they have. But Jade Goody was a remarkable story. And it's like, it, it, I don't think people fully understand the significance of it from a socio-cultural point of view. Because that really, if you wanted to have one thing and you can point to, British culture in the 20th, 21st century, in terms of what it is, pointed to the Jade Goody saga because it says it all. There's nothing missing from that story. No, I've got a bit of a, this might sound a bit radical, but um, I've researched, not in relation to her case, but just in general, I've researched this extensively. And even mainline medical people will tell you that cancers, uh, for example, which Jade Goody ended up with, is predominantly due to lifestyle factors and stress, which, of course, is a lifestyle factor. I'm thinking also lifestyle factors in terms of you know diet and lack of exercise or whatever. And m most cancers are actually related to stress, whether people are really aware that they're under stress or not. So what I'm saying here is it would not surprise me if it could ever be established that Jade Goody got sick because of the extreme pressure that she was under and her complete and utter lack of any ability to deal with that. 
I completely agree with it. Actually, I'll go as far as saying that the media essentially murdered her. I would totally, you know, she could have had cancer cells in there, as you said, from from her, you know, her past lifestyle, whatever. You know, it's very, these are very complicated things. Uh, she could have, you know, she just could have had them anyway. We don't, there's some people even believe that those kinds of cancers relating to exterior parts of the body, such as melanomas and, you know, sexual cancers could even be a virus. Having said that, they could have been dormant cells or benign cells. And if that, that, you know, that woman was put, I mean, I can remember idiots like that shoplifting beard, uh, Richard Madeley, uh, calling her disgusting and, and, and apologizing on behalf of the British people to uh, India. And it's just ridiculous. And it's this, wo- you would think this woman was Hitler or Stalin or something, the way she was being treated. An uneducated woman in her 20s. And absolutely, she was under such pressure. I couldn't, I couldn't imagine what her nights were like during those early days. It must have absolutely been hell. Her immune system must have just collapsed and these dormant or benign cancer cells flourished. So, I'm, yeah, I, I completely agree with you there. And it, it almost, it's almost like murder. It's, it was literally like ritual murder in a way by attacking her nervous system and her uh, immune system through vast amounts of uh, vicious, stress-inducing uh, hysteria. Yeah, well, just a side point, maybe that just to put this in context, most people may not realize that actually our cells in our body are constantly trying to become malignant, but it's our immune system that's preventing it. It's very, very good at just stopping it. You know, it sees the cell that's no longer part of you and it kills it. And even when you have malignant cells, that in itself is not cancer. The cancer is, is a further stage of development. So just to explain that for people. Um, a very important point you make, general, general point with the book is, and I suppose it's one of the key me- parts of the message, is that everything now has to be showbiz. I mean, it's one thing to have reality TV, garbage music in the charts, but politics now has to be um, showbiz and entertainment. Even even war now has to be entertaining. And at the extremes of all this, it extends everywhere. Uh, on the radio a couple of days ago, I was listening to a UK, uh, an English TV cook called Delia Smith. She's one of the old schools. She's been doing cookery shows for decades. And she's quit quitting. She's not going to do any more TV shows because she's been told that her shows have to be more entertaining. You know, she can't just show people how to cook and talk about recipes. That wouldn't do it. And at the other end of the scale, we cast our minds back particularly to, I mean, this applies to the coverage of the war now, but particularly with when Gulf War II kicked off, the shock and all. Remember the footage of the, that first assault on Baghdad from the air? I mean, that just looked like a Hollywood film. Yep, it was. So did 9-11 look like a Hollywood film. I can always remember it was my first impression of it because I didn't see 9-11 when it happened. I was working that day in the building. that I didn't have the commuter hooked up yet. I went home that evening and I just watched the footage in one big go so i didn't have this like update i just heard people talking in the office about it but i didn't have that sort of like drip feed a version of it and it felt like i was watching uh die hard or something like that the explosions and everything and i think that's what really stuck with people about that event is the fact that it looked like a movie and the same with the that shock and awe thing on the first day of the the war, the war where the top of that building blows up again it looks everything war has to look like video games now they don't show the the ordinary the average brutality of war, the average board, you know, boredom that most soldiers go through, they, sh- they show it, excuse me, in a 
in a in a video game film style. This is also to do with recruiting. This is a, a spell, a kind of a magical spell. They play through movie magic on young people, particularly in America, where they will actually, again, it's, it's used as a recruiting tool to get them to join the military. They get them, but they don't tell them that bullets fly both ways, just like when they're playing video games. They don't tell them that, that you know, in real life, that guy's really shooting bullets back at you. So the whole thing is sold in that way. But this whole thing you mentioned about politics being entertainment, that began a long time ago with uh, John F. Kennedy and Richard Nixon in a television debate. I think it was 1960 or 61. And it was the first time they'd had a TV debate of that kind where you had the presidential candidate sort of battling it out on TV. And even though Nixon at the time in America was a very popular politician among a sort of a certain generation, Kennedy came, or just the basic sort of middle-class demographic, Kennedy comes on and he looks like a film star, he's dressed very nice, he talks, he looks very confident, he's young, he has that look about him, and for the first time in America, large numbers of young women vote. This is very it for him, and that pushed him over the edge because he looked like the film stars they related to. And that was the beginning. I can remember Bill Clinton playing his saxophone. I mean, I know, I, remember, I can remember that quite clearly. He was a nobody from Arkansas, and I was living in America at the time. Suddenly he's on uh, MTV or the David Letterman show, one of those kinds of shows, and he's playing saxophone on stage wearing a pair of dark glasses like the Blues Brothers. And the next thing you know, he's president of the United States. And they get more and more more like that, where the the president has to be more and more like somebody you'd see on TV, with Obama being the ultimate of that. And that's why these presidential inaugurations are filled with pop stars and film stars and rock stars. They're just it's the same thing as what you know, it's, it's, it really is what someone called uh, the military industry, the military ent- entertainment complex or the, the, the political entertainment complex. It's very, very powerful stuff and we're never going to get away from it. I can remember yeah, what's his name? Tony Blair car- car- carrying his Fender Strat case into uh, number ten, and then they had that whole cool Britannia thing where he had like Noel Gallagher in there with him and the guys from other bands, and the idea of this is a new generation, this is the rock and roll prime minister, and this guy was an absolute genocide warmongering maniac. This guy should be in prison. Uh, he's a psychopath, and uh, it's again people. That's all they want. They want the show. They've been, well, not that they want that. They're conditioned to believe he's just like me. He's just one of us. He likes beer. And he likes rock and roll and stuff like that. But the reality is, it's just a spell. It's just a, uh, it's just a facade, a shimmer that they put into our faces, put into people's faces to buy and sell this idea of a, of what politics is today. It's quite frightening, actually. I can't, I can't imagine how far it's going to go. I imagine we haven't even seen the beginning of it. Just mentioning U.S. presidential situation, Obama, um, really an incredibly fake guy when you actually really look at what he's about. But I know people were sick to death of Bush and, uh, you know, it's by extension, the Republicans and the Democrats. It was their turn in the never ending back and forth cycle of left and right. But I'm convinced a lot of people voted for Obama because he was black. And I put that in quote marks because actually genetically speaking, if you speak to a geneticist, Obama isn't black. I can't remember what the percentage is. I'd have to look it up, but he might be something like, say, 17% genetically African stroke African American. But, you know, he's not black. I know you might say, well, he looks black. Well, you know, <laughs> yeah, but it's, if we have to draw a line somewhere, then he's not black. But anyway, that's just a, that's just a bit of a distraction. It's not a distraction, and you're absolutely right about that, because I was in the United States in 2007, and I had two Americans tell me that they were voting for Obama because we're going to put, we need to put a black president in there to shut the blacks up. If that's not racist, 
I don't know what is. Now, these people wouldn't think they were racist. They would think they were actually open-minded. But they actually said that, oh, it'll put that whole, that whole thing from slavery and Jim Crow laws and Malcolm X, and, and it'll put that all to rest. It'll, it'll keep the blacks happy. It'll, it'll shut them up. And, that, you know, that's literally why they voted for him. And that to me, that, that to me, that's as racist as voting for a KKK guy. It's just a different kind of indirect passive racism. That concludes part one of our interview with Thomas Sheridan, speaking about his latest book, The Anvil of the Psyche. Be sure to tune in next time for part two, when we will continue our exploration of propaganda and psychic programming in popular culture, and mind control and manipulation in the mainstream media. Until then, my name's Greg Moffat, and you've been listening to LegalizeFreedom.com.